Grab a Bible, find the book of Judges, and uh, there's notes in the front and the back. We're going to talk about Gideon tonight. The book of Judges is one of my favorite books in the Bible because uh, all of the characters are very relatable. And as we talk about heroes, they all have glaring failures and shortcomings and hang-ups that at some level, on some level, you feel like you can relate to these guys and you feel like they're uh, maybe a little more accessible than some of the other Bible heroes that we may talk about. So we're going to talk about Gideon. I want to actually start by talking to you about a guy named Jorge Santillana. Uh, You may or may not have ever heard of this guy. I'll get to some of his quotes in a minute, and my guess is you've heard of some of his Uh, His quotes, he was born in 1863 in Madrid, Spain. He died in 1952, so he lived a a long life. Uh, Born in Madrid, died in Rome, Italy. And he was actually raised and educated in the United States in the middle. And if you you look up uh, just information about his life, sometimes he's called a philosopher. Sometimes he's remembered as an essayist. Sometimes he's remembered as a poet. Sometimes he's remembered as a novelist. The big idea is he wrote things. And people remember him for his writings. And he's especially remembered for all the poems and novels and essays and all the things that he wrote in his life. He's remembered for his aphorisms. He's remembered for his quips. He had an ability to take an idea and to put it in a a phrase, to say it a certain way that it just stuck with you and it, it made you think. And so I just, as I read about this guy's life this week, uh, I jotted down a few of his quotes that stood out to me and that I've thought about. So I'll put a few of these up on the screen. He said this, fanaticism is redoubling your effort after you have forgotten your aim. That's a pretty good description of fanaticism. And what's interesting, this is a total turnover into right field, just a total, you know, piece of useless information that some of you will really like. There's a guy named Chuck Jones who created a bunch of different cartoons, but one of the cartoons he created is Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. And in an interview one time, he was asked, could you please explain the Roadrunner, uh, excuse me, explain Wile E. Coyote to us? How would you describe that character that you created? And what he said is, quote, fanaticism is redoubling your effort after you have forgotten your aim. So there you go. Came, came from Jorge Santillana. Um, a couple other quotes that I thought were interesting. He said this about war. Only the dead have seen the end of war. He said this about the changing of the seasons. You may or may not agree with him. He says to be interested in the changing seasons is a happier state of mind than to be hopelessly in love with spring. I don't know if I agree with that or not. I'm ready for spring. But he felt like you should enjoy all the seasons. So there you go. Talking about education, a couple of things just about learning. He said, a child educated only at school is an uneducated child. And then he also said this, the wisest mind has something yet to learn. And I like that quote. I've often thought that as I've taken college classes and seminary classes and I've come to the end of it and you're supposed to have mastered some subject and I've found myself thinking, at the end of this class, all I know is how much I don't know about that subject now. I'm just aware now of what I need to know and I don't know. So there you go. I like this one. This is my favorite. Friends are generally of the same sex for when men and women agree, it is only in the conclusions their reasons are always different. And you can just take that for whatever it's worth. It may not be worth much to you, but I like that. And I think it's usually true. Yeah, I I think he was. He, He spoke from experience. Here's the one that you guys probably know. He wrote this. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And a lot of people have said something similar to that throughout history. Uh, but Santayana, at least in, the, in our culture, was the guy that wrote it down and said it in a way that has kind of stuck. And you've probably heard that phrase or at least something close to that phrase. And it came from his writings. The book of Judges is basically that quip or that aphorism just lived out. It's just history repeating itself over and over and over again. It's this cycle 
of God's people rebelling, God giving his people over to oppressors, God's people suffering and then calling out to God, God having mercy on them and sending a judge who delivers them. The people take a breath and relax, and then it all just starts over again. And it just happens throughout the book until you get to the end of the book. And the change at the end of the book is that there is no more repentance. There's oppression, and there's suffering, and there's affliction, and there's sort of groaning in a sense of misery, but there's no more repentance. There's no more turning to the Lord, which means there's no more judges, which means things just start to spiral at the end of the book. So it's a a fascinating read, and it's sort of a living out of what Santayana expressed. Within the book of Judges, just as we kind of think big picture, we actually meet 12 judges. Some Bible scholars feel like judge is not the best word to use in English because when we think of judges, we think of the guy or the gal sitting up in the courtroom with black robes and a little gal. Judges, really. They do preside over a court. That's not exactly the picture of any of the judges, really. They do hear some, you know, some concerns of the people from time to time, but these are more like generals. These are more like military leaders. These are more like people who lead Israel in some sort of fighting or battle or, or conquest. There's 12 of them in the book. Eight of them are minor characters. They only show up briefly. Four of them are major characters who we actually get to read about a little bit. And what's interesting is that Gideon, probably along with Samson, has the fullest story. Like for Gideon and Samson, there's actually an entire story arc to their life, meaning you you know something about their family and where they came from. You know something about their calling and, and who they were and what they struggled with. You know something about how God used them, and you know how they died in the end of their life. And all of those stages are sort of told. As for Gideon, I pulled a quote from a Bible commentary written by Daniel Bach, and I put this quote on your notes. He says this, Like the rest of the stories of the deliverer governors, that's his term instead of judges, deliverer governors. This account, he's talking about the one of Gideon, it declares that if anything positive happens in the lives of the people of God, it is by his grace and not on account of merit. Evidence of any positive disposition toward Yahweh on the part of the Israelites as a whole or even Gideon in particular, is scant. Now just take that sentence in again. He's writing like a a guy with lots of letters after his name, but he's saying, when you look at the story of Gideon, any evidence that there is a disposition, a, a heart for the Lord, either among the people or among Gideon, the deliverer, governor, the judge, the evidence is scant. Nonetheless, moved to pity by the cries of his people over the distress caused by the enemy, God intervenes, calling forth his agent of deliverance and effecting the victory over the enemy. Yahweh is the only hero in the account. So we're calling it heroes, and we're talking about Gideon, and just right off the bat, we're taking Gideon off the hero line. And we're saying Gideon is really not much of a hero at all. The Lord is the hero of this story, and the lesson is how did, he, how did he use Gideon and what can we learn from his life. So let's put it in the context of the Old Testament. We're doing this every week. Uh, we're just kind of in the middle in this period of the Judges. There's been creation in Genesis, and there's been fall almost immediately as Adam and Eve rebel. We talk about the flood, which includes the Tower of Babel and the rebellion of mankind. We get into the period of the patriarchs, which we normally think of as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and they end up in Egypt through Joseph, and then later through a famine. After the patriarchs is the exodus, which is what we're talking about on Sunday morning. Then comes the law. God gives his law to his people after he brings them out. The order of that is important. First he saves them, then he gives them the commands. He doesn't give them the law and say, keep it, and then I'll save you if you're good enough. But he saves them, and he says, now that you're saved, this is how you ought to live. Then comes the conquest. Moses dies, and Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and they fight up in the north, and they fight in the south, and they divvy up the land, and they all move to their places. And then comes this period of the judges, and it's just an odd period in Israel's history. They don't have a king yet. 
They don't have anybody that unifies them as a whole. Moses is dead and Joshua is dead and there's this whole new generation. And we're not to Saul yet. We're not to David yet. We're not to any kind of monarchy. We're just sort of in a a transition period and we call it the period of the judges. I want to read a couple of verses um, and we've talked about these recently, but they just help you understand what's going on in Gideon's day. So look at Joshua 24. This is the very end of Joshua's life. This will uh, give you a head start on Sunday morning. We're going to read some of these verses Sunday morning as we talk about the book of Exodus. Joshua 24, look at verse 14. Joshua's given one last speech to the people and he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he's calling the people to make a decision, right? You're going to go back to the gods of Egypt. You're going to serve the gods of this land, the promised land, the Amorites, or you're going to serve the Lord. And he says, my, my family's going to serve the Lord. Verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now look, if you're given a motivational speech and you give an altar call, that's the exact response you want. God has saved us. Far be it from us. We would never do such a thing as to serve the, the gods of this land or go back to the gods of Egypt. We're in with the Lord. And then look how Joshua responds. Can you imagine this at the end of a Billy Graham crusade? He's invited all the people to respond. Everyone comes forward and they're making their pledge to the Lord. Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. And he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. It's the biggest wet blanket on an excited group of people on a spiritual level. He gets them exactly where they need to be. We will serve the Lord. And then his response to them is, you are not able. He doesn't just say, you're not going to. I know you. I've seen you. I've been with you all these years. I know what's going to happen. It's not just that he says, you're not going to do it. He says, you're not able to do it. You don't have the ability to do what you just promised to do. Why? Because God is holy. You turn, And because God is jealous. And because he's the judge. And when you turn from him, sinful people that you are, he's not just going to ignore it. He can't do it. You don't have the ability to obey him. And you turn the page from Joshua 24 and you say, ah, now we're in the book of Judges. And that's exactly what plays out. These people who have promised to do something so intensely, we will do it. Far be it from us that we would serve anyone else. As a nation, they just slide right back in to their same ways. And I know we read these verses a few weeks back, but let's look at Judges 2, verse 11. We'll just read a few verses here. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. This is two pages later. You, you realize that. I know it's not like two days later. There's some time that's gone by. There's at least one generation that's died. But this is right on the heels of what we just read. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. 
uh, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. They whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked to it, obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And that's the cycle. That's normal in Gideon's day. That's just the status quo of we get in trouble, we cry out, God sends a judge, we get delivered, and then we go back and we do our own thing. That's happened multiple times by the time Gideon shows up. So that's the timeline, that's the context. I did list out the judges for you, all 12 of them. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson is the last one. They're all flawed, every last one of them. There's none of them that you look at and say, I want my kid to be just like this one when they grow up. They're all flawed individuals. All of their influence is very short-lived. All of their influence is very local. And what I mean by local is none of these judges lead all of Israel to sort of unite and follow the Lord. Their influence is very regional. It's maybe within their own tribe's inheritance in the promised land. They just don't have a widespread influence. And none of them lead any sort of national revival. So let's jump in and talk about Gideon. We're just going to walk through his life story. It begins with oppression. And that's in Judges 6. And there's just a couple of things I want you to see here. Um, Judges 6, 1, that says the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we, we expect that. We've read the introduction to Judges. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. So the particular people that is afflicting the Hebrews here are the Midianites. And if you'd like to make notes in your Bible and you read Midian there in Judges 6, 1, you may go back and think, Okay, the Midianites, these are sort of long-lost cousins. Named. These are people who, when Abraham was very old, he took a, another wife named Keturah, and through that woman had some children late in life, and one of them was Midian, and the Midianites came through that family. And at the end of Abraham's life, he took that sort of wing of his family, gave him a bunch of money, and sent them away said, I want you guys out of here. I don't want you messing with, quote-unquote, my real kids. And he sent these folks away, and that's the beginning of the Midianites. You may remember the Midianites are the slave traders who pick up Joseph when his brothers pull him out of the pit and buy him and take him into slavery in Egypt. That's the Midianites. You may remember Midian is the place that Moses goes to live when he has to run away from Egypt. He goes to Midian. And he takes up shepherding there uh, with these long-lost cousins, the Midianites. There's a, a, a fight, a military conflict. After the people come out of Egypt in the Exodus, they end up fighting the Midianites. So that's who's afflicting the, the people. And if you keep reading in, in uh, Judges 6, what you find out is that the Midianites show up every time food's on the table. Like your bad neighbor or your bad cousin or somebody like that. Every time food comes out, they show up. And what I mean is every time it's almost harvest time, they show up and they take all the food. And then they leave. And Israel just kind of struggles along and hobbles along. And then it's time for another harvest and they show up and they take all the food. And this is just kind of going on and on. They're oppressing the people. And if you look at Judges 6.6, 6, I like this verse. I'm reading out of the ESV and Judges 6.6 6 says, Israel was brought very low because of Midian, 
what the Hebrew literally says is Israel was made small by the Midianites. It's, it's almost like they're just pressing the people down in affliction. So we meet this, this guy named Gideon, and the context of it is oppression. One thing we're not going to really talk a whole lot about, but I do want to point out to you, and maybe you can circle it in your Bible and go back and, and think about it. This is the only time in the book of Judges that before God sent the judge, he sent a prophet. Usually the judge shows up and just starts kind of kicking tail and taking names and lining everybody up and then the people have rest. But in this instance, in verse 7, when the people cried out to the Lord, it says in verse 8 that the Lord sent a prophet. And we don't know who he is. Um, We have a little bit of an idea about what he said and what he called the people to do and and what he wanted from them. But it's just interesting. This is the one spot in Judges where there's a prophet sent uh, before the judge. So that's the oppression. Next stage is Gideon's calling. His calling. This is Judges 6, 11 to 24. And uh, again, I just want to point out a couple of things here so you get the idea. Look at verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. And just file Ophrah away in your brain. We're going to come back to it. So just save it up there. He's at Ophrah. It belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, I'm not an expert on wheat harvests. And I'm not an expert on wine presses. But I'm pretty sure you don't mix the two. You don't beat out the wheat in the wine press. And the idea is, normally, the wheat would be threshed out up on a hilltop where the breeze would catch the chaff and the wheat would fall down. Remember, the Midianites show up every time there's food. So Gideon's thinking, if I go up on the hill to sort this stuff out, Midianites are going to show up and eat all my food. So he's hiding, essentially, in the wine press, and he's trying to to bring in the harvest, so to speak, here. And if you like to make notes in your Bible, you you should get your pencil out. And in verse 11, we meet someone called the angel of the Lord, and you can just circle that, and you can go down to verse 14, and now it's just the Lord. And then you can go to verse 16, and it's the Lord. And then you can keep going to verse 20, and it's an angel or the angel of God. And then if you look in the very next verse, in verse 21, it's the angel of the Lord. And then if you look in verse 22, again it says the angel of the Lord. And then if you look at verse 23, it just says the Lord. All the way through this, that's the same character. And it may frustrate you that... The author of Judges just couldn't pick a title, but the author of Judges is trying to make a point to you that this angel of the Lord who shows up and speaks to people and is this manifestation of some spiritual being to people is more than just an angel, but it's actually the Lord himself making some sort of appearance to his people. So you can, you can jot those and go back and look at them. Look at verse 12. The angel of the Lord shows up, and I like what he says to Gideon. In verse 12, remember what Gideon's doing, right? He's scared of the Midianites, so he's trying to get some food, and he's hiding out in the wine press. And in verse 12, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Like, the idea is you're a mighty warrior, hiding out, terrified of the Midianites. And I think it's 100% sarcasm. I read different scholars this week who try to take different angles on it. I just think it's sarcasm. And I think it fits with everything we see with Gideon later. He's a fraidy cat. He's just scared. And the angel of the Lord calls him this mighty man of valor. And I think it's 100% tongue-in-cheek, sarcasm, uh, just trying to make a point to Gideon, like, "Why, why are you so afraid of these people? That's an issue that's going to keep coming up. Uh, Gideon objects. If you look at verse 15, this sort of reminds you of when God sent Moses to Egypt. In verse 15, Gideon says something like, uh, My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So 
my clan is not even important in my tribe. And within my own tribe, my family, or within my clan, my, my family is not that big of a deal, and I'm the, the least in my family. I'm a nobody. And it goes all the way back to what the angel said to him at the beginning. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Because the Lord is with you, you don't have to be this terrified guy hiding from the Midianites in the wine press. It doesn't matter that you're the smallest in your family and your family's insignificant in the clan and your tribe is not that big a deal. None of that stuff matters. Because the Lord is with you, you have the potential, God working through you, to be a mighty man of valor. But Gideon doesn't see any of that. Next stage, I don't know that I came up with a great title for this. We're just going to call it Beginnings. I wouldn't say that he's a full-fledged judge at this point, but I'd almost say God is kind of easing him in. And uh, maybe you, if you just want a visual of this, you can think about, you know, there's two ways to get in the swimming pool when it's cold. You can just jump in the deep end and see how it goes, or you can sort of tiptoe in and just try to ease into the water and get used to it. And I think God is taking the second choice with Gideon right here. He's just kind of easing him in. And he doesn't say to Gideon, hey, put the wheat down, get out of the wine press, we're going to fight the Midianites. What he says is, put the wheat down, get out of the wine press, I've got a couple of things for you to do. It's not march straight into battle and take on this massive horde of people. It's get out and I've got a couple of small tasks for you. The first task is, I want you to go to your dad's house and I want you to tear down the altar to Baal. Once you go to your father's house, there's an altar to Baal there, and you're the guy that's going to tear it down. And it's really interesting. If you look at Judges 6, verse 25, look what it says. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And the idea of Baal and Asherah for the the Canaanites was that Baal and Asherah were basically together. Male and female. Baal and Asherah. And they run around together and this God does this and this God does this. Baal's like the rain God for the crops and Asherah's the fertility goddess for the animals. And they just go hand in hand. And God says to him, at night, I want you to go do it. And amazingly, he does it. Immediately, And as you read that, that immediately he goes to do it, you think, well, this guy's Johnny on the spot. Like, there's no delay in this guy. God says jump, and he says how high. I'm going to do it immediately. But then you keep reading, and look what it says in verse 27. Gideon took ten, of his, ten men of his servants, and he did as the Lord told him. But, because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So it's not that he just wanted to obey God instantly. It's that he said, hey, I have a window of opportunity that isn't quite as scary, and I'm going to do it then. And, again, we're easing Gideon into this, so that's, uh, that's okay. It is interesting that Gideon's name, Gideon itself, means hacker. Not like computer hacking, but like taking an axe or a machete or something and hacking something to pieces. And that's the first thing he does. God sends him and he says, hey, go to that Baal statue in the Asherah pole and hack it to pieces. Knock it down. And that's what he does. So way to go, Gideon. Good job. Second job is uh, a little bit different. And you can read about it down in verse 33 and 34. Verse 34 says, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He sounded the trumpet and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. So basically, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him to gather up an army. He's not going out to fight yet. He's not standing in formation ready to, you know, let the arrow loose or hack a, a soldier to pieces. But he's got the army together, and God's sort of easing him into this thing. That's when we come to the end of Judges 6. And in my Bible, it says, the sign of the fleece. This is probably part of the story that you know about Gideon. This is what's interesting to me. God doesn't say to Gideon, I want you to go get all the army together and then go fight. At that point, Gideon doesn't say, "Eh, 
I don't know about that. Let's do the fleece thing. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he gets the army together. The army is there with him. He's not alone. He's got armed men ready to go to war with him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him to do that. And it's at that point that he starts to have second thoughts. The second thoughts are not, what if nobody follows me? What if they won't come out? What if this? What if that? He just totally wimps out. And he comes up with this scheme of, I'm going to put the fleece out and I want dew to be on it. Or I'm going to put the fleece out and I don't want dew to be on it. And look what the text says in Judges 6, verse 39. Right in the middle of that verse, he says, please... Let me test just once more with the fleece. You understand that the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't do it. Right? We've been working through the book of Exodus, and I think it was just this last week. God has been testing his people, but at Meribah, the tables are turned and the people put God to the test. And it's this idea of we're not going to believe in you unless you come through. The people test God. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, one of his responses came straight from the book of Deuteronomy, and he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That was when the devil had quoted Scripture to Jesus from the book of Psalms and said, throw yourself down, the angels will come, and they'll bear you up, and you won't be hurt, and everything will be great. And Jesus says, it is written... Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. So I can't tell you how many times I've heard people talk about Gideon. Maybe they're not just talking about Gideon. Maybe they're just talking about their own life. And they say something like, you know, we felt like God was leading us to make this decision, so we threw a fleece out there. And I want to say, but you know that's wrong, right? You're not supposed to throw a fleece. I know Gideon did it, but you're not supposed to do it. There's a lot of other guys in the book of Judges who did a lot of rotten things that you're not supposed to do. Just because they did it in Judges doesn't mean you get to do it. So when you have this idea of, eh, I don't know, what should I do? I'm going to throw a fleece out there. Just go back and remember Jesus in the wilderness. Don't think of Gideon, think of Jesus. And Jesus saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's straight from Deuteronomy 6. So there's the beginnings. Now comes the judging. And this is really interesting. Gideon the judge. Judges 7.1 to 8.21. He's, he's sounded the trumpet and all these guys have come out, right? He's got 32,000 soldiers. And God basically says to Gideon, that's, not, uh, that's too many. Too many people. What's interesting is, you find out later the Midianites had 135,000. So you think, you know, 32,000 versus 135, they're going to need some help. God's going to get the credit for it. But God looks at it and says, no, you got way too many guys. If you go fight with that many guys, you're going to take the credit and I'm not going to get the credit. So he says to Gideon, right, this is the same Gideon, just think, the same Gideon who's hiding in the wine press because he's scared. The same Gideon who throws the fleece out because he's scared. God says to him, tell everyone who's scared to go home. To which Gideon probably thought, I'm out of here. This is great. I get to go home. Everyone who's scared gets to go. And immediately, 32,000 soldiers becomes 10,000. And Gideon is is still there. He doesn't get to leave. And God comes to him and he says, 10,000, you still got too many. You got way too many. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to take the guys. You're going to go down to the river. The guys are going to get a drink. If they do this, some of them are going to go home. If they do this, some of them are going to stay. And that 10,000 instantly becomes 300. 9,700 guys get sent home. So now you got Gideon with 300 and he's going to square off against the Midianites. Again, we find out later they have 135,000 people. And he's terrified. And as you keep reading in chapter 7, he's just he's beside himself. He's scared. He's anxious. 
And look what the Lord says to him in verse 9. Judges 7, 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And it says, then he went down. Why did he go down? Because he was terrified. He was scared, and he was afraid. So he's judging, and uh, you keep reading. There's the, the story of he splits the 300 into groups of 100, and the torches and the fire, and they yell, and God sets an ambush, and they win this great battle. 300 men defeat 135,000. And then comes chapter 8, and I'll just be honest with you. There's, there's parts of the book of Judges that I cannot explain to you. There's things that happen in the book that all I can say is, this is what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. This is what happens when people don't trust the Lord and don't know His Word. And Judges 8 is one of those chapters. Gideon, he's won this great battle, and then he wants to track down these two uh, guys named Zeba and Zalmunna. And you find out at the end of the chapter, the reason he wants to get them is that they killed his brothers. He's not after justice. He's after just pure blood revenge. He just wants to get even with them. And along the way, there's some people who really don't want to help Gideon. And he's really mean to these folks, like his kinsmen. He's really mean to these guys. He shames them and he humiliates them and he puts some of them to death. And you just think, I don't know why he's doing that. And then you get to the end and he gets Zeba and he gets Zalmunna and they're right there in front of him. And of all the things that you could do, he looks at one of his sons who is also afraid. And he says to his sons, kill these guys. To which you think, why would you ask your son to do that? You're the judge. Why don't you do it? You've been tracking them down. You've wanted to get them. Why would you do that to your child? And I don't have an answer for that. Other than to say it was a rotten, low-down, dirty thing to do. And he shouldn't have done it. I don't know if Gideon was too afraid. We do know that his son was too afraid because he hesitated. He just he couldn't pull the trigger, so to speak. So chapter 8 is a, a strange chapter, and Gideon starts to come off the rails a little bit. So it, su- it shouldn't surprise you that the next stage in his life we're going to call idolatry. Idolatry. We'll come back to this in a minute. The people want to make Gideon the king, and he says no. He makes an ephod, and scholars debate what that was exactly. Was it something he wore or something someone else wore? But he makes this ephod, and the bottom line comes down in verse 27 to say this. Gideon made an ephod. He put it in his city, Ophra. I told you to remember Ophra. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So you've got Gideon the judge whoring after this thing. You've got his family following with him, and you've got all Israel following after them. So idolatry. Next is his death. He dies. They bury him in his father's tomb in Ophrah. And then his story really isn't over because what comes next we're going to call his legacy. And as soon as he dies, the people go back to Baal. And there's this terrible story about Gideon's son Abimelech who murders almost all of his brothers. And you just, you re, again, you read it and you think, how can you explain that? What's going on? It's just total chaos. That's the book of Judges. There's a, a civil war that breaks out in Israel. And in the end, Abimelech is hiding out in a town and some lady we don't even know about, she just throws a millstone out the window and it crushes his head and then you say, that's the end of Gideon's family. And you come to the end of it and you think, well, what kind of story is that? Like, Gideon, this guy that God uses, ends up whoring after this ephod and then he dies and then his son Abimelech kills all the brothers, just slaughters them in cold blood, and then a woman throws a millstone on his head. That seems, why would you put that in the Bible? What is the lesson for children or youth or adults about that story? 
And the lesson is, this is what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's completely nonsensical. It's just complete chaos. The people who don't learn from history are going to be condemned to repeat it over and over and over and over again. And that's what's happening. So it ends with his legacy, and it's not a good legacy. So now let's talk negatives and positives. Corey had Daniel last week, and Corey said something to the effect of, there's not a whole lot of dirt on Daniel. That's true. On Gideon, it's the opposite problem. There's plenty of negative things to say. Where, how are you going to find something good to say? So we're going to start with the negative because that's easy. I did my best to cram all this into one single sentence. Here we go. Gideon was a coward who put God to the test, who took vengeance on his enemies, who ruled as a tyrant, and who led the people in idolatry. That's a pretty salty negative. A coward who put God to the test, he took vengeance on his enemies, he ruled as a tyrant, and he led the people in idolatry. So we've talked about most of these verses here, about Gideon being a coward. He, he tears the Baal statue down at night, chapter 6. Chapter 7, it's the, the cowardly soldiers who are sent home, and for some reason Gideon has to stay even though he's terrified. Chapter 8, he asks his son Jether, or Jether, to put these two Midianite kings to death. He's a coward. He puts God to the test. That's chapter 639, the story of the fleece. It's not a positive thing. It's a negative thing. It's not something that we should emulate. It's something you look at and say, Gideon should not have done that. He takes vengeance on his enemies. That's chapter 8. We talked about that with these two kings. And he tracks them down. He only wants to kill them to get revenge for his brothers. Chapter 8, he rules as a tyrant. I just want to read this. We didn't talk about it. But look at chapter 8, verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, for the Lord will rule over you. To which you say, hey, that's a pretty good answer, right? That's kind of what the people needed to hear. You don't need a king, you have the Lord. And so you kind of want to pat him on the back. But then Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. And when Gideon says, let me make a request, that's kind of like the mob boss coming up beside you and putting his arm around you, rubbing your shoulder and saying, hey, I need you to do me a favor. Would you do something for me? Are we friends? He's really not asking you to do anything. He's telling you what you're about to do. And he's telling you if you don't do it, there's going to be a consequence. So here's this guy Gideon who takes out the Midianites and then he goes on a bounty hunt to kill these two kings to get even for what they did to his brother. And the people come and say, be our king, be our king, rule over us. And Gideon says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I just need you to do me one favor. I want your gold. Hand it over. Give me the jewelry and the, the bounty and the, the booty and the plunder that you took from the Midianites. All I'm asking you for is that you pay tribute to me. It's not like... I'm going to take the money and we're going to invest it in community development. It's not, I'm going to take the money and we're going to open a school for orphaned Midianite kids. It's, give me the money and I'm going to make an ephod. And instead of seeking the Lord, we're going to seek the ephod. And it's not a request. It's a demand to the people. And the people realize that and they fork the money over. So he rules as a tyrant and he leads the people in idolatry. And I just think it's interesting if you look at Judges 6.24. It says, Gideon built an altar to the Lord and he called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. And that's when the Lord says, okay, you've built this altar to me. Now we're going to tear down the altar to Baal in Ophrah. There's now an altar to the Lord. And it starts off and you think, there's some hope here. The problem is these people haven't been worshiping the Lord. There's hope. He's tearing down the altars to Baal, and he's tearing down the, the altar to Asherah, and we've got an altar to the Lord. And then you come to chapter 8, verse 27, and it says, Gideon made an ephod of the gold, and he put it in his city in Ophrah. 
the guy who once tore down pagan altars in Ophrah is now essentially building them back in Ophrah. So he leads the people in idolatry. So that's a negative. What can we say that's positive? Let's say this. At times, heavy on the at times, Gideon trusted the Lord and he obeyed the Lord. And through his leadership, Israel experienced a season of peace. Season of peace. So, we don't want to be too hard on Gideon. He did go to his father's house and tear down the altar. And he knew there would be a consequence for that. And he did it. Yes, he did it at night because he was scared, but he did it. So, kudos to Gideon for that. Um, There is a season of peace because of what the the Lord does through him. Look at Judges 8.28. It says, Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And it's a nice sort of bow tie on the top of the story there in verse 28 where we started off with the Midianites oppressing Israel and Israel is made very small, very weak. And at the end of it, the Midianites are not raising their head up anymore, but they're keeping their head low and they know their place and there's peace in the land. And just flip over to the New Testament with me and look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 goes from Abel to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Sarah. Come back to Abraham to Isaac to Joseph to Moses. We talk about the the period of the Exodus and Joshua and the people at Jericho and Rahab, the prostitute. And then we come to verse 32 and it says, What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And all of those guys are guys you meet in the book of Judges. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. And can I just be straight with you? They're all scoundrels. They're all rotten guys. And they end up in Hebrews 11 as people who are being commended on some level. And the author of Hebrews isn't commending them for how good they are, how moral they are, how brave they are, how courageous they are. He's commending them saying, these are people who trusted in God. And you look at Gideon's story and you say, well, it really doesn't look like he did. His faith looks weak. And it looks inconsistent at best. And it almost looks like it just peters out at the end. What kind of faith is that? Listen, what matters is not the strength of your faith. What matters is the object of your faith. There's Christians all around Odessa, Texas that think they're saved because their faith is strong enough in God. Or strong enough in Jesus. Or they think, I can get through this trial if I have enough faith. If I have strong enough faith. Well, that's putting it all on you. And the Bible doesn't ever put it all on you. What matters is not the strength of your faith or the consistency of your faith. What matters is who your faith is in. And even though Samson and Jephthah and Gideon and Barak all had issues, the author of Hebrews looks back on it with perspective and says they all had faith in the Lord. They made mistakes. They weren't always as brave as they should have been. They did really rotten things, but their faith was in the right person. So he's commended for for having faith. How does it point to Jesus? Two simple thoughts. Gideon's story reminds us that God can do great things through seemingly insignificant people. I hope on some level that's an encouragement to you to say, Well, I may feel insignificant. Maybe I come from an insignificant family, or maybe I don't feel gifted as much as the next person, or maybe I don't feel like God could use me. Well, Gideon was a train wreck of a person. I mean, his life was pitiful, and God used him for the good of his people. And it reminds us that God can do great things through seemingly insignificant people. And just flip over to the New Testament and look at John 1. This is a story you remember. John 1.43 says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, Follow me. 
Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth? Nobody's come from Nazareth. People of no significance, which is exactly who God used. And Nathaniel's response is the opposite of what other people said to Jesus and how they responded to Jesus. You think of maybe the Gospel of Luke, early in Luke, Luke chapter 4, where Jesus preaches in his hometown And the people stand up and they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know this guy? Who does he think he is? He's a nobody. He's totally insignificant. And through someone from Nazareth, God does great things. Last idea is this, pointing us to Jesus. Gideon's story reminds us that God can win the greatest victories in surprising ways. And the story of the the 300 guys taking on all of the Midianites is certainly not a conventional way to win a battle. It's not a, a direct assault. It's not a, you know, mass the troops up. It's sort of a, a backhanded, surprising way to win. It's unexpected, which is exactly what happened when Jesus came, right? Think about all the times in the Gospels where Jesus encounters the demons and they keep saying things like, we know who you, who you are. We know why you're here. You've come to torture us. You've come to, to be done with us. And they're, they're expecting like a, a full-on assault on the front of the gates. And instead, Jesus humbles himself and gives his life up. He, he allows himself to be crucified. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 2. He talks about if the powers of this world had known... They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known what was going on, they wouldn't have done it. They didn't realize that in what they thought would be victory would actually turn to their defeat. And what looked like defeat for Jesus would actually turn out to be victory. And it's the same idea we see in Gideon's story, that God can win the greatest victories in surprising ways. So there's Gideon.